Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnamevavashishyate Filled full with Brahman are the things we see. Filled full with Brahman are the things we see not. From out of Brahman floweth all that is. From Brahman floweth all, yet is it still the same. Om Shanti 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 Peace, peace, peace. <clears throat> Good morning. Today's topic is this mysterious thing called karma. Some of you may have had this experience. You're out shopping here in a store somewhere, looking at all the different things for sale. <clears throat> Your eyes go here and there around the store. Suddenly you notice a sign, and it says, shoplifting is bad karma. And you begin to think, well, you know, what is this thing called karma? <clears throat> and then you get the idea that, well, karma is really about things that you shouldn't do. Because if you do them, there might be some bad consequences, some punishment. And so this sign, shoplifting is bad karma, is put up by shopkeepers as a deterrent for you to take what is known euphemistically as a five-finger discount. Some of you may also have watched a recent episode of the TV show Monk about the detective with all of the neuroses. And in this episode, the word karma figured four or five times during the whole course of the story. And just watching this, you would get the idea that karma was all about some sort of cosmic retribution. The idea that if somebody did some wrong to you at some time in the past, you were going to live to see the pleasure of them getting what they had coming to them. <laughs> so that was another idea about karma in our pop culture. <clears throat> but really, is that what karma is all about? I looked up the word karma in the Webster's um, New World Dictionary to see what they had to say about it. And the definition runs like this. In Buddhism and Hinduism, karma is the totality of a person's actions in one of the successive states of his existence, thought of as determining his fate in the next. And so far, so good. But then the dictionary says, hence, and then there's a second definition, loosely, fate, destiny. So then I thought, well, what do they mean by fate? And the dictionary gave this definition of fate, the power supposed to determine the outcome of events before they occur, something inevitable, destiny. So then, of course, I had to look at destiny to see what the definition of that was. And it says, the inevitable or necessary succession of events, what will necessarily happen to any person or thing. So by this time, if you're thinking, well, if it's karma, is this sort of inevitability, uh, shouldn't we just give up now? You know, why go on? <clears throat> this reminds me of a line in the play by Eugene O'Neill, Long Day's Journey Into Night. Some of you who were present here at the last lecture uh, recall that I read an extended passage from this play all about one of the characters having experienced transcendence. Well, there's another part of the play where his mother says this about life. This is her view. <clears throat> the past is the present, isn't it? It's the future, too. And of course, again, that is a very bleak view. And if that is the case, you know, why don't we all give up? <clears throat> then I looked in the Oxford English Dictionary to see what their definition of karma was. And the 
dictionary mentioned that the word karma entered the English language early in the 19th century. This was at the time when the Western world began to become interested in Indian religion and philosophy. <coughs> and the OED gives this definition of karma. The sum of a person's actions, especially intentional actions, regarded as determining that person's future state of existence. So this is a much better definition of karma, and it doesn't mention all of this inevitability of destiny and fate. The Sanskrit word karma literally means act or action. It can mean either a mental action or a physical action. The word karma can also mean the consequences of those actions, the result that any action produces. And it can also mean the sum total of all the consequences of those actions. Karma is about what we do, and it is about what happens to us. <coughs> now, where did this idea of karma come from? Is it unique to Hinduism or to Indian thought, to Buddhism? Actually, we find this idea universally expressed in all of the world's religions. There seems to be this universality of cause and effect, which people have noticed, commented about, thought about, and drawn conclusions from in all parts of the world at all times in history. I'm going to read a couple of scriptural passages from different religious traditions that have to do with this idea. <coughs> and these will come more or less in chronological order. The first of these comes from the Jewish tradition, from the Jewish Bible. It's from the book of Hosea, who was one of the prophets. And Hosea said, sow for yourselves according to charity, but reap according to your loving kindness. So here we have this idea of sowing and reaping, of planting seeds and harvesting. Next comes the Manusmriti, the laws of Manu. This is the Hindu law code, which probably took shape in its present form somewhere between the second century BCE and maybe the second century of the Common Era, somewhere in that area. And the Manusmriti says this, it cannot happen that one kind of plant should be sown and another be produced. Whatever seed is sown, a plant of that kind comes forth. So here we have an elaboration on this idea of the planting and the reaping. Whatever kind of seed you sow, that is the kind of crop that you reap. <coughs> St. Paul, writing in the epistle to the Galatians, this is from the Christian tradition, also says, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And then <coughs> we have still later in the Quran, the prophet Muhammad, who said, if you do good, you do good to yourselves. If you do evil, you do evil to yourselves. So here, the prophet has added another dimension to this whole idea of sowing and reaping. Because basically, he says, if we do good to others, we are also benefiting ourselves. Whereas if we harm others, the harm actually accrues also to ourselves. <coughs> so we find this idea of sowing and reaping is almost universal in the world's religions. And it goes back to this idea of people living at an agricultural state of subsistence, where people had settled down in into communities, they planted crops, they harvested the crops, the food that was thus produced, 
enabled them to live in villages, sedentary. They no longer had to be hunters and gatherers and nomadic peoples. So all of these great religions of the world have this agricultural metaphor about sowing and reaping. <coughs> if you take this to a slightly more abstract principle, you have the idea that the seed contains the potentiality of something that is going to manifest. <coughs> and then you can take that principle and you can say, well, this means that our actions have consequences. Whatever we do matters because whatever we do leads to something else. <coughs> and this also seems to be an idea that is very much ingrained in people's thinking, whether they think of it or not, sort of at a subconscious level. How often have you either heard yourself or somebody else saying, particularly in a trying circumstances, whatever have I done to deserve this? This is something everybody says at one time or another. But when you stop to think about it and analyze it, it shows that there's this idea that something happens for some reason, that every effect that is produced has to have some cause. <coughs> now, there are different interpretations of this whole cause and effect metaphor. In the Abrahamic religions, that is Judaism, Islam, Christianity, which are monotheistic in their outlook, the general idea is that God is the one who punishes or rewards according to our actions. <coughs> On the other hand, in the Eastern traditions, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so forth, the idea is that this karma is something that we bring upon ourselves. The punishments, the rewards, all of this is a result of something that we ourselves have done. And it is not the idea that God is up there somewhere watching over us, keeping score, and meeting out these punishments and rewards. As a matter of fact, Shankara comments on this in the Brahma Sutra Bhashya, and he mentions the deity Parjanya, who was the deified storm cloud of the ancient Vedic religion. In ancient Vedic times, people looked upon all the forces of nature as different aspects of divine power. And so there were worships, rituals, sacrifices, offerings made to the various Vedic deities to ensure harmony, abundance, and good life here on earth. <coughs> Parjanya was the storm cloud, the deified storm cloud, gray and heavy with rain. And they would pray to Parjanya and make offerings so that the rain would fall, the rain would fertilize the earth, it would cause the seeds to grow, the crops to grow, and then there would be an abundant harvest and people's lives would be assured. <coughs> so Shankara said, Parjanya, the god, the deity who causes all of the seeds to sprout, he is the common cause of all of this. But every seed contains its own characteristic. If you plant a grain of rice, a rice plant comes up. If you plant a grain of wheat, the crop will be wheat. If you plant barley, you get barley. And so he said that even though there is this divine power <coughs> that makes sure that everything goes according to cause and effect, at the same time, it is not God that is judging and handing out punishments and rewards because the seed contains the potential of what it will grow into. And so every one of us with our own karma is an individual with a different destiny, a different future. Because of what we have done, that is what we can expect in return. 
So the rain is only because it will make all the seeds sprout, <coughs> but it doesn't have any sort of partiality. And so the idea in the Eastern thinking is also that God is not a punisher or a rewarder, but that all of this is taken care of through these cosmic principles of cause and effect, which have been ordained, of course, by some sort of divine intelligence. Now, the very earliest idea of karma in the Vedas is not what we think of as karma today. The word karma, as I mentioned, means action or activity, performance of some sort. And this whole idea of karma in the early Vedic religion was very strongly tied in with the idea of ritual sacrifice. The word sacrifice in English comes from two Latin words, which literally mean to make holy. So sacrifice is not a sense of killing something or giving up or doing without or creating a hardship for yourself. Sacrifice is any act that makes something holy. And the way to make something holy is to direct it toward the divine. So in the ancient Vedic times, these elaborate rituals were developed for sacrifice. And there would be a sacrificial fire on a special altar that had been built according to certain specifications. There were different types of priests who performed different functions. There was chanting of mantras, pouring of oblations into the flames. The god of fire, Agni, would take the human prayers and offerings skyward to the celestial gods on high, and then they would grant prosperity, abundance, peace, long life, and blessings to humankind. So this was the original idea of karma, this act of ritual sacrifice, making offerings to the gods. Now the idea was <coughs> basically that, and of course the idea of an afterlife started coming into the picture as well. So people developed the ideas that if we perform well here on this earth, if we follow all the teachings of the Vedas, not only sacrificing to the gods by making the offerings of ghee into the fire, but also living according to all of the injunctions of the Vedas, to live without harming others, to live truthfully, um, to be honest, uh, to be nonviolent, to be kind, to be in control of ourselves, to be peaceful, calm, righteous, generous, all of these things, that those good actions would provide rewards in a hereafter. <coughs> and the idea developed that after leaving this body, the soul would go to a place of reward or punishment according to its acts during the lifetime here on earth. <coughs> and then what would happen is after the effects of those karmas had been exhausted, the soul would return to earth, be reborn in another body, and take up where it left off on its spiritual journey. Here we're getting into more of a philosophical idea because we have not only the idea of the cause and effect which began in observable nature, but now we have this also another idea that the human soul is immortal, indestructible, and that it is going to reap rewards and punishments, and that these rewards and punishments are only temporary. And this is a wonderful bit of philosophical thinking that enters here because the idea is that any action we perform in our lives here on earth is by its very nature finite. A finite action cannot produce an infinite reward. 
Therefore, if we are good, we are not going to be sent to some sort of eternal blessedness. And if we are evil, we are certainly not going to be sent to some sort of eternal damnation. The, re the result of the action is commensurate with the action itself. And so the idea developed that after exhausting all of the fruits of actions, good or bad, the soul, the jiva, is reborn in another body on earth to take up the spiritual journey. <clears throat> so we're getting some philosophical thinking now along with everything else that has been developed so far. The first real statement of karma appears in the oldest of the Upanishads. This is in the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. <clears throat> now ordinarily when we think of the Upanishads, we tend to think of them in the traditional orthodox order which begins Isha, Kena, Kata, and so forth. But scholars who have studied the Upanishads as texts, looking into the language, the themes, and everything else, date them chronologically in a different order. And they find that the oldest of the Upanishads is the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. It is also the largest. And the next oldest is the Chandogya, which is the second largest. And together, the Chandogya and the Brihadaranyaka account for the bulk of the principal Upanishads. <coughs> and they themselves are both compilations of much, much older material. We know this because in both of these Upanishads, there are rishis who are teaching on a given subject. And the occasionally they will say, and on this subject, there is the following verse. And then they will quote something from a much, much older source. <coughs> and so the first real statement of karma that we find comes from the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. Now this is older than anything from any of the traditions that I quoted earlier. And in this passage, the great Rishi, Yajnavalkya, who is the greatest of all the Upanishadic seers, is at the court of King Janaka, King of Videha, and they are having a conversation. <coughs> and here is what Yajnavalkya says to King Janaka. This self is truly Brahman. This is how he begins this. Sava Ayamatma Brahma. And you've heard all of this before. Ayamatma Brahma. This is one of the four Mahavakyas, the great sayings of the Upanishads. This self is Brahman. And then he adds, This self is truly Brahman, consisting of understanding, mind, life breath, sight, hearing, earth, water, air, space, light, the absence of light desire and the absence of desire, anger and the absence of anger, righteousness and the absence of righteousness in all things. Thus, it consists of this and that. Now, the self that he's talking about here is not Brahman, the ultimate self, the ultimate reality of God or divinity. He's talking about the individual human self. And this self is that light of Brahman, that essence of consciousness, spirit, pure spirit, but it is also associated with intellect, with mind, with life breath, with the sensory faculties by which we know the world, with the physical elements that we know in the world, and then with our emotions, whether they be virtuous or non-virtuous, uh, anything that we can perceive or anything that we cannot perceive but we can infer by logic. All of this, he says, is part of what we call the self, our personality, our embodied being. And then he continues, 
and this is the first statement of karma that we know. As one acts, as one behaves, so does one become. In Sanskrit, yata kari, yata chari, tata bhavati. As one acts, as one behaves, so does one become. The doer of good becomes good. The doer of evil becomes evil. Sadhukari, sadhur bhavati, papakari, papo bhavati. One becomes virtuous through virtuous action and bad through bad action. Punya punyena karmana bhavati papaha papena. Now indeed, it is a person's desire that prompts the will. And the word he uses here for will is kratu, which means will, intention, purpose, resolution. The will that leads to the deed, and as is the deed, so does one become. And I'll read that whole thing through without interruptions this time. Yagnivalka tells King Janaka, as one acts, as one behaves, so does one become. The doer of good becomes good. The doer of evil becomes evil. One becomes virtuous through virtuous action and bad through bad action. Now indeed, it is a person's desire that prompts the will, the will that leads to the deed. And as is the deed, so does one become. So this is our earliest statement of karma as we understand it in the modern sense. And then in the following verse, Yajnavalkya says, on this there is the following verse, Tadesha Shloka Bhavati. Here is an earlier teaching which I am now going to quote to you. So Yajnavalkya is teaching something that was even true and known before his time. And so he tells King Janaka this, with that to which the mind is attached, the subtle self goes along with the deed. Then exhausting the results of the deeds done in this world, one returns again from there to this world and acts again. And this is the idea that according to what you have done here in this life, you will go to some place of reward or possibly punishment, reap the results of your actions, and then return again to this world. So this is already old when Yagnivalkya is teaching it to King Janaka. And it also this statement requires some comment, Yagnivalkya thinks, because then he goes on and makes a further commentary upon this verse that he has just quoted. Yagnivalka says, this is for one who is driven by desires, but for one who is desireless, who is free of desire, whose desire has been fulfilled, whose only desire is knowledge of the self, his life force does not depart. Being Brahman, he merges into Brahman. And this is very beautiful in the original Sanskrit because all of these words with desire have this <coughs> beautiful sort of poetic resonance. So he says, one who is driven by desires, kamamanaha, but for one who is desireless, akamaha, who is desire free of desire, nishkamaha, whose desire has been fulfilled, aptakamaha, whose only desire is for knowledge of the self, atmakamaha. See, it all goes so beautifully in the Sanskrit. His life force does not depart. In other words, this person does not cease to exist, does not cease to be. But being Brahman, being that divinity itself, he merges into Brahman. So here we have another very important idea, the most important idea that arises with this whole idea of karma. And this is the idea of liberation, spiritual liberation, enlightenment, mukti, moksha. 
So this goes back to the very earliest of the Upanishads. <coughs> now we noted that karma seemed to have originated from observation of facts in the natural world. <coughs> and it goes back to this whole metaphor, this powerful metaphor of the seed being the potentiality and that you plant a seed and you harvest a crop. <coughs> and so actions have consequences. <coughs> now the next question is, we're looking at the natural world and then we're looking at our own actions. And is it the same law of causality that governs all of this? Now here we have to do a little more investigation. The Svetashvatar Upanishad, which is a middle period Upanishad, begins with a series of rhetorical questions. At the very beginning, the sage Svetashvatar says, Kim Karanam, what is the cause? What is the cause of our existence? And then he asks, is it Brahman? Why are we here? Where did we come from? Where are we headed? Is there any purpose for our being here? Is there any permanence in our existence? And is there anything that governs the course of our lives through all of its happiness and all of the rest? These are rhetorical questions. Of course, he's an enlightened seer. He knows the answers himself, but he's posing this to start the teaching. In the second verse, he mentions that eight different things have been proposed as causes for our existence. And he dismisses all eight of them in that very verse by saying, they are all observable effects, and an effect is not a cause. <coughs> but two of them that he brings up are rather interesting. One of them is called niyati. Niyati means determinism or natural law, basically the way the world works. And the other one he brings up is yaducha, which is the Sanskrit word meaning randomness or chance. <coughs> And so some of these are ideas that earlier philosophers have put out. You know, why are we here? Is this all an accident or is this some sort of planned thing? If we go back again to the older Vedic text, the Rig Veda, we find a word rita. And the word rita in the old Vedic days meant this sort of natural law, this principle of order that fills the entire universe. We find this also in other ancient philosophies. The ancient Greeks spoke of chaos and cosmos, the unformed and then the formed, orderly, rational, scientific universe. So we have the same thing here, that the ancient Vedic thinkers spoke of Ritta. Ritta for them included both this natural law, the whole thing that made the universe work, and also the idea of a moral or an ethical law. Now, by the time of the Svetashvatar Upanishad, they're no longer using this term ritta very much as this all-encompassing law of cause and effect and cosmic order. Instead, we're speaking of a physical law, a natural law, niyati, and a moral law, dharma. <coughs> and of course, the two are related, but as we see, they operate on two different planes. The physical law operates at the level of physical nature, and the moral law operates at the level of human thoughts, feelings, emotions, and behavior. <coughs> now, both of these are present. And I'm going to pose a little question here. Let's say that there's a missionary who goes to Africa. And he's working in a village. And he's bringing the gospel to the villagers. And one day, he goes outside of the village walls, outside of the compound. It's a beautiful day. He wants to enjoy nature. And there's a lion who sees this missionary pounces upon him and devours him. Now, is that karma? 
we might say that from a missionary standpoint, because this is something that has happened to him, yeah, maybe this is karma. From the lion's standpoint, is this karma? No, from the lion's standpoint, this is lunch. <laughs> the idea is that karma is a moral law. It involves planning. It involves intention. <coughs> and with the animals, uh, forms of life below the human, we do not have this idea of this rational planning and intention. So for the lion, there is no moral dimension in pouncing upon a missionary and devouring him. He's not going to say, oh, I'm hungry, but this is a man of the cloth. I'll wait until somebody else comes along. Lions do not make those kinds of ethical or moral decisions. Now, on the other hand, if you had a shaman in the village who didn't like the fact that the missionary was encroaching on his territory, and he plotted in some way or other to get rid of the missionary, either through very nefarious means or maybe something like just driving him out, that would be karma because this is something that involves planning, intention, and morality. So we have causality working at these two different levels. It works at the level of physical nature, which in Indian philosophy is called the gross level, stula. And then we have the whole idea of dharma or ethics or morality, which is also a law of causality. But this operates at a higher level. This is the subtle or sukshma level. And this has to do with thought, feelings, emotion, the workings of our minds and hearts. Now, it's very easy to <coughs> prove that there is a law of causation in the physical world. If I take an apple in my hand and then loosen my grip on it, the apple is going to fall to the ground. If I invite one of you to take a pencil and paper and to watch me as I repeat this, every time the apple is going to fall to the ground. I can do this a thousand times, and there's not one time when that apple is going to remain suspended in space, or it's going to rise up, or it's going to go drifting off somewhere. Every time, because of the law of gravity, the way the world works, that apple will fall to the ground. <coughs> in the same way, all of our science is based on this idea of observation, experiment, repeating the experiments, recording the results, and drawing conclusions. Now, can we do this with something as subtle as karma? Uh, can we? It's a very good question, and I'm not going to answer it just now. Karma operates at this mental level, this subtler level of our thoughts, feelings, and emotions, and it involves these questions of ethics and morality. <coughs> Now, earlier, we had the idea that if you perform good actions, you would be rewarded. If you perform bad actions, you would reap those unfortunate consequences. And very often, karma has been presented as kind of a chain of cause and effect. Now, if we look at this chain, we find that every link has two functions. It is the effect of the preceding link, and it will become the cause of the next link. And so this whole idea has this idea of chains. And of course, we have the idea that chains will bind us. So the, even the early rishis realized that whether the chains are of iron or the chains are of gold, in either case, they are binding. We are bound by our bad actions. We are bound by our good actions. And the idea, of course, with liberation, as Yagnavalka has introduced, is to break free from any sort of bondage or action. 
Now let's think of another metaphor besides this chain, because the world is a very complex place. <coughs> a better metaphor is found in the Shaitashitaru Upanishad, and this is the metaphor of the net, because every cause can be the cause of several effects, and any one effect can also produce other causes. So if you think of all of these different points of connection, instead of just a simple chain, you can have a whole web or a net. And this is the idea that we find exactly in the Svetasvatar Upanishad. Here the seer says, spreading out every single net, each one differently, into this field of action, God then gathers them in. Moreover, having issued forth all this, thus the Lord, the great self, holds sovereignty over all. So we have a great many ideas in this verse. First of all, that there is a God who is absolutely supreme, all-powerful, all-knowing. We also have the idea that this God, this divinity, this creative power, spreads out every single net. And the word net here, jala, refers to every individual human soul. Each of us has our own distinct pattern. And it says here, each one differently, every single net, each one differently. Because every one of us is the sum total of all of our thoughts and all of our actions. And so no two people are exactly the same. No two people have an identical past. No two people have the same future. No two people have the same present. We are all unique individuals, each made up of the sum total of all of our experiences in this life and in any preceding lives. And so here he says that God throws every one of these souls, these complexes of all of these impressions, into this field of action. And again, this word kshetra has so many wonderful meanings in Sanskrit. This field of action, this is the place, the arena where all of this plays out. On the other hand, the field also is soil, the ground. And one of the commentators on this verse mentions that if you look at a field and you see in the spring, the crops begin to sprout and germinate the tender young green shoots. And then you know, eventually they mature and they produce this crop. And then the field lies fallow again. So here we have this cyclical idea, not only in nature, but also applying to the human soul. We are born into this life, we live this life, we depart this life, we are born into another life in the same cycle of ever-constant renewal that we find in nature. And then eventually God gathers it all back in again. We all return to the source. That's another thought in this. And so <clears throat> we have this idea that there is a divine intelligence guiding, underlying, and supporting all of our actions. <coughs> Now, the idea is that there is this natural law and there is also the um, moral law. And these are not two separate things because we find that there are so many intersections. For example, let us say that someday a person forgets to put gas in the car and they get to a very crucial part of the interchange downtown and the car runs out of gas, it's at rush hour, and it's stalled right in the middle lane and everything comes to a screeching halt. And you know, hundreds of thousands of cars could be tied up in traffic because this one person forgot to fill up the gas tank. Now when you consider this, it may be a minor annoyance for a lot of the people, but there may be very important things going on in people's lives where they have to be at a certain place and they don't make it. Maybe somebody missed out on a 
job interview and missed getting a very important position because of that one person's carelessness or forgetfulness. <coughs> and so this just shows how intimately everything in this world is connected. This is one person's action influencing perhaps tens of thousands of lives because for each person caught in that traffic jam, that day is not going to go as it was planned. In some cases, it may go dreadfully after that. For some people, something really wonderful may be become because of this unexpected event. And for other people, it will be neutral. You could take another instance. Maybe there's an old tree somewhere that's infested with termites. And someday, the wind comes up and blows it over. And it hits a power line. And the power is knocked out. And again, the lives of tens of thousands of people are affected because this tree fell over. That would be a case of natural law, but again, it's having an effect on human lives. And you have grandma who doesn't make it to her own birthday party because she's caught in an elevator at the shopping mall where she went to have her hair done that morning. So life is very, very complex that way. And there is an interaction between the natural laws and what we do, the moral laws, the dharma, and the neity. <coughs> And it's all too complex for any of us to try to figure out, even though we try to do it. And so why should we? If you begin to ask, you know, why am I this way? Why am I not? Why don't I have movie star good looks? Why am I not really intelligent? Why am I not rich? Why do all the good things happen to that person and not to me? When we begin to question why, 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 looking for a reason for everything in our lives, we just get all bound up even further in this whole idea of bondage, karma, cause, and effect. And instead of applying our mental energies to meditation, to spiritual life, instead we're thinking all about our bondage and trying to figure out why it is. We're tied to the past, we're tied to the present, we're worried about the future and we can't figure it out. It's just an exercise in futility, it's a total waste of time. So when these kinds of thoughts arise, just remember, don't ask why, because there is no profit in it. Now, again, is this law of karma provable? Again, I'm not going to answer it just yet. <clears throat> uh, first, we're going to take a look at how karma works and then how we can make karma work for us. <clears throat> uh, how karma works. Here, a few Sanskrit words come into play. First one of these is samskara. Now, the word samskara means impression. And I'm sure that every one of you have memories of being a child when suddenly the adults would say something like, oh, not in front of the children. Children are so impressionable. Or per perhaps you are parents, and now there are certain things that you don't want your children to be exposed to because children are so impressionable. Well, guess what, folks? We are all impressionable. Children, adults, people of any ages. The mind receives impressions. Everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that we experience, everything that happens to us leaves some sort of mark, some sort of impression. <coughs> and this is the word samskara. <coughs> and even today in Western psychology, we find certain psychologists using this term, saying that the mind becomes imprinted with certain types of behaviors. They generally use it in a very, very specific and narrow sense and not in this general sweeping sense of a philosophical principle. But the idea is that our own awareness <coughs> is subject to receiving impressions, and these impressions then 
determine who and what we are. <coughs> so that's the first word, samskara. When these impressions become very, very deep, they are known as vasana, which means ingrained tendency. <coughs> so a good analogy of this would be to say that you were driving an ox cart down a road. And every time you drive the ox cart down the road, the wheels make the ruts a little deeper. And the more this happens, <coughs> the more difficult it's going to be to get out of those ruts to take a different route. And this is exactly what we do with our minds. Every time we repeat the same patterns of behavior, the same responses, let the same anger rise up or the same sarcasm or whatever it is, <coughs> we're just strengthening and deepening that impression and forming our character even more solidly around that. <coughs> so this is samskara and this is vasana. Now, <coughs> karma operates in different modes. And so we have four words that apply to karma. These are prarabdha, sanchita, kriyamana, and agami. <coughs> and some of these words are defined differently in different texts, and so it's very difficult to get an authoritative statement on this. Uh, we'll start with the two basic ones, which are sanchita and kriyamana. The idea is that anything that we do or say or think produces an impression on our awareness. And this is a samskara. Now we're stuck with these samskaras. Karma is like a quiver full of arrows. And as long as all of those arrows that we have gathered up are stored in the quiver and not being shot, they are known as sanchita. This is the stored up karma. This is the potential results of all of our thinking and our acting in this life and present lives things that we have done that have not yet begun to bear fruit. Now, let's say an archer takes an arrow out of the quiver and shoots the arrow. Once the arrow has shot, been shot, it is traveling at its own velocity, in its own direction. There's nothing that the archer can do to recall the arrow, to stop it, to redirect it, to change its speed. This is called parabdha karma. This means karma that is activated. And so the parabdha karma is the karma that, number one, is responsible for our present birth. The fact that I am born a man or a woman in this country, in another country, whether I have certain talents and abilities or lack those talents and abilities, what I look like, whether I'm born into a prosperous family, a poor family, all of these conditions of our birth are determined by the prarabdha karma. This is things that we have done in the past that are now activated that are bearing fruit. So that is one aspect of parabdha karma. It is responsible for who we are and our physical environment. It's also responsible for our inner tendencies, our personalities, our likes, our dislikes, all of this. Our whole character is based on this parabdha karma. So this is what we come into the world with. Every infant born into this world comes with a personality. Children are not these blank slates. So this is the um, parabdha karma. Now there are two other words that we use with uh, karma. One is agami karma, which means coming up karma. This is karma that produces an action <coughs> that we can see the results of. Um, it is something that happens in this lifetime. It can be almost instantaneous, or it may take longer to manifest, but we will see the results of it. For an example, if you wanted to see a very um, 
you want to see agami karma in action, you could go, uh, next, go out onto the sidewalk, throw a rock through your neighbor's window and stand there and wait and see what happens. And you would see that, yes, actions do have consequences. This is an example of agami karma. I do something and immediately, or very soon thereafter, I see that there is a consequence. <coughs> the other kind of karma is the best kind of all. This is called kriyamana karma, which means the karma that is being created in the moment. And this is different from all the other forms of karma because kriyamana karma is actually the freedom we have to make choices, to mold our own futures, to mold our own characters and personalities. So at every moment, you have that freedom of how you're going to think, how you're going to respond to a situation, how you're going to act, what you're going to say, what you're going to do, what your attitudes will be. Uh, this is actually, some people would like to say this is a gift of divine grace because it is this total sense of freedom. Now, <clears throat> you can argue that if we are the product of our past, if our personalities have already been shaped so thoroughly by the parabdha karma, you know, what chance do we have for this freedom of action? And of course, this is something we have to consider. <coughs> because we are very much the product of our total past experience. We don't have this absolutely free will. Uh, even if you were to be taken, let's say, to um, a major city, let's say you were flown to Paris, and somebody said, you can do whatever you want here today. Uh, money is no object. Whatever you want to do, you're free to do it. What would you do? Every person would do something different, no doubt. But at the same time, every person would be doing something that was already determined by that person's interests, abilities, likes, dislikes, and so forth. So even this seeming act of absolutely free choice is already going to be conditioned by who you are and what your tendencies are, what your personality is. <coughs> Some people might go to a, a, an athletic event. Other people would go to an art museum. Some people would go to a concert. Some people would go shopping. And it's all because of your own character, your own personality, which you yourself have created. So we have kind of this idea that with this Kriyamana karma in the moment, you are going to be have to swimming against the current, in a sense, because it's this current of who you already are, the Parabdha karma, that seems to be always carrying you in that same direction, repeating the same habitualities, those same things that you're comfortable with, not because necessarily they're the best thing for you. You're comfortable with them because they're familiar, that sort of comfortability. And so to make a difference <coughs> in the moment may require a tremendous amount of effort. But nevertheless, there is that freedom there. So if you're the type of person who tends to become angry when something goes wrong, the next time the anger is welling up, you can think, I don't have to do that. This is what I have already imprinted on my mind, but I am not bound to follow this. I can choose this time not to get angry. I can redirect my energy in some way, deal with the situation in another means, and see what happens. And of course, if the outcome is favorable, then you realize, well, I've got that one experience behind me. The next time I feel challenged in this way, I can again apply this principle and little by little, we can change our whole method of behavior, our attitude, 
and our character, our personality, and eventually our destiny. So this form of karma, the Kriyamana karma, is actually the freedom we have, the inherent freedom to redirect ourselves to whatever goal we choose. And of course, the highest goal would be the goal of spiritual knowledge, self-realization, liberation, and so forth. <coughs> now, <coughs> this Vaitesha has more to speak about this matter of karma, and this is about our mental dispositions. Sri says here, as the body lives and grows through an abundance of food and drink, so the dweller in the body, through its intentions, involvements, outlooks, and delusions, assumes a succession of forms and conditions according to its actions. So he's saying quite a few things here. He's saying, first of all, that the physical body lives through an abundance of food and drink. This is neity. This is natural law. This is the way the universe works. So also the dweller in the body, this is the jivatman, our individual selfhood, through its intentions, involvements, outlooks, and delusions, assumes a succession of forms and conditions according to its actions. What we do, we become. And that doing includes even thinking. What we think, what we feel, so we become. And he uses these four words here, sankalpana, Sparshana, drishti, and moha. And every one of these is important. First of all, sankalpana. Sankalpana means intention. For there to be karma, there has to be some sort of intention. And you can get into legalistic uh, arguments here, which sound like they're right out of a courtroom. You know, is this person guilty? No, because there was no intention to, for, to do this act. It was purely involuntary. It was accidental. This person should not go to jail because of it, and so forth. So with karma, there has to be this intention. And why do we have intention? This is very important. We have intention because we have lost sight of who we are, what is our true original nature, the fact that we are divine. We have forgotten this because we are so caught up in this personality, this identity that we have created for ourselves, identifying with body, with mind, with likes, with dislikes, with ideas, and so forth, with possessions even. And so I am this because I am the owner of this, this house and that car and I hold this position and I make this much money and this is my circle of friends and I have these responsibilities. So we create these senses of identity. But we have forgotten behind all of this who we truly are, which is the divine spirit, Brahman, Atman, Paramatman. And so we have lost sight of our fullness, our absolute bliss, our true joy, <coughs> and instead we're always trying to compensate for that. We have forgotten that we are the whole, the infinite, the one. And so we have to fill up this void with possessions, with power, with reputation, with enjoyments. And we're always having these sankalpas. Sankalpana is this idea of intention designed to fulfill some need. In fact, we are needless. We are free from need, but we just have forgotten that. So first of all, for the karma, there has to be this intention. Then there is the sparsana. This is touching. The word literally means touching. And here what he is talking about is the fact that the mind goes out through the five channels of the senses and interacts with the surrounding world. 
The mind goes out and brings back all the information through sight, hearing, taste, touch, and smell. And then in this way, we can form our intentions and desires, and we act accordingly through our organs of action. And so, but it all starts in the mind. It's all this mental, uh, this mental touching. <coughs> then there's the drishti. Drishti literally means seeing. But it can also mean, besides seeing and observing, it can mean seeing with the mind's eye, this inner sort of perception. And it also can also take on the idea of my outlook, how I see the world, how I color it, what my attitudes are. And so the mind forms these needs and wants that it feels compelled to fulfill. It has the sensory and the motor apparatus to do that by interacting with the world. And then it has the attitudes it has formed towards the world, positive or negative. And then finally, the fourth of one of these mental uh, dispositions is moha. Moha usually means delusion. And it can mean distraction because we are distracted. We've lost sight of our true being. It can mean infatuation because we become so involved in all of these things that we think are going to bring us happiness. It can mean mental darkness. Literally, it comes from a word muh, which means to lose consciousness. So we are not operating with our full awareness. All of our understanding is veiled by maya, by all of these things of the world, by all these finite things that we identify with. And therefore, we that, in fact, then colors all of these other things, our intentions, our interactions, our perceptions, our attitudes. All of this is colored by the fact that we have lost sight of who we truly are. And so Sri Teshwatara says that because of this, the soul assumes a form, assumes different forms, a succession of forms and conditions according to its actions. So we are driving ourselves in this whole play of existence, this whole play of samsara, this ever-repeating cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. Then in the next verse he says, Indeed, many forms, gross and subtle, does the embodied soul choose according to its own merits. Again, there's this idea of choice of freedom, that we have made ourselves who we are. And in driven by this involvement with the effects of its actions and their particular qualities, the soul is seen as greatly inferior. Inferior to what? Inferior to our true nature, which is the glory of the infinite divine, the glory of Brahman. And so the whole of spiritual life is to regain that knowledge of who we truly are. And when we do that, we are liberated. So we began with this mysterious thing called karma, and we looked through various ideas of what it is, and we found that, in fact, it is not necessarily punishment. It is not retribution. Um, <clears throat> it is not fate. It is not something inescapable. That, in fact, in the Kriya Manakarma, in the moment, it is we who are in charge, we who have the freedom to decide what our actions will be. And we can choose either to remain bound in the cycle of samsara, or we can choose to embark on a spiritual practice, practice of sadhana, which will lead to self-knowledge and to liberation. So <clears throat> in the best understanding of the term, karma is not fatalism, but it is empowerment, spiritual empowerment. And in any case, in every moment of every day, the choice is ours.